The conversation you are about to hear was recorded in March during the 2023 AAOS annual meeting in Las Vegas. Following the member-exclusive AAOS FDA Town Hall, I had the opportunity to sit down with two of the panelists for an intimate conversation about innovation in orthopedic care. We talked about the challenges facing the industry, such as regulatory compliance and increasing competition, and the importance of coming together to overcome them and ultimately improve patient outcomes. This is a particularly timely topic, given the mention of PROMS data or patient-reported outcomes measures and the start of CMS's first voluntary submission periods for total hip and total knee arthroplasty beginning July 1st. We have much more to share in the coming weeks and months, but for now, I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. Hello and welcome to the Advocacy Podcast. We are here today at the annual meeting for the American County of Orthopedic Surgeons and have the pleasure of inviting two guests. We have Dr. Jed Savar, who's our Chair of Research and Quality Council, and we also have Captain Pete, who heads up the Office of Orthopedic Devices for the Food and Drug Administration. We had a really unique and wonderful town hall at the Academy, and we wanted to go into some of these topics. For those of you that couldn't make it to the meeting or have further questions, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those items. Welcome to the podcast and looking forward to working with both of you on several of these topics. Number one, Dr. Jesvari, we talked a little bit about this dashboard that we have that I think is really neat, an opportunity for surgeons to be able to see kind of an outline or an easy way of looking at how things are going, what's the evidence behind those things, and what works and what doesn't work based on our data. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how surgeons in the community could be using that information that's provided to them? Sure. So I think we have two dashboards that are effective, and especially as they relate to the FDA. The first dashboard we developed was in 2020, and that's our biologics dashboard. And it really is just based on FDA guidance on what's happening in the world of biologics. And really the purpose of that dashboard was so that our members could look at a product and understand whether this is something they should consider using, whether there was any evidence at all, whether the FDA has issued any guidance on a topic, and really to drive additional research in that area. The most recent dashboard, which was one that was developed by the Council or the Committee on Devices, Biologics, and Technology with the Patient Safety Committee, was looking at recalled devices, recalled implants, recalled devices. And it's been good for us. I'm sure that there probably is an FDA site that has everything listed, but our members have asked where they can find that information. For any of us that have been involved with recalls, we know that we get letters from industry, but many of those letters get to us six or eight months after they were supposed to, or they get thrown away or nobody knows that they exist. So it's good for people to be able to go someplace and look to receive that information. Yeah. So that was very interesting that you had that particular dashboard. I do think that there are areas where we can collaborate with you on that dashboard. Why I say that, you're absolutely correct in the sense that recalls Whenever we issue a recall and we have a letter to the healthcare provider, it takes months before you get it. But also, too, we're focusing on our patients as well. And so not just communicating just to our healthcare providers, but being able to 
communicate directly to the patients that are implanted with these devices. One of the things that we've been working on is a patient implant card. So for orthopedics, I know cardiovascular does it, but I know for orthopedics, as we be able to provide that information. So listen, I am in the military. And when I go and get my health care, regardless of whether it's an orthopedic device or any other device, I always get a card. I thought that patient implant card was across the space. When I talked to other individuals that are civilians in my organization, they said, no, the military is unique. So how can we get that information to our patients, to our healthcare providers is vastly important. So I do think that dashboard that you've developed is equally important to be able to synthesize the information, but also too for them to be able to make informed decisions on their patient care. So interestingly enough, when you talk about the cards, we did issue those cards in the 1990s and they actually went away after 9-11 because the most common reason that somebody would use the card was to get through airport and not have to be checked. Obviously, with security issues, there's no card now that can do that. But that was why the cards went away. So I think we'd all be happy with either a card or a digital certificate that a patient could have. I think that would be critically important. Absolutely. This is something that we're reestablishing. As we have our vision within our center with patients having access to high quality, safe and effective products of public health importance first in the world, The key aspect of that particular vision is patients. And so if our patients can have these implantable cards, these patient implant cards, it would be helpful when we have a recall for them to plug in the information to see whether or not they're implanted with the recall device or be able to have informed discussions with their providers as to next steps and how to best care for them. So this is where we're going as an organization. So I really loved hearing about the dashboard that you've developed, both from a biologic standpoint, as well as a medical device standpoint. I think obviously the biggest reason to do it is for our patients. But as you're probably aware, there have been some liability issues with orthopedic surgeons who did not report to patients that their device was recalled or they hadn't received that information. So it covers lots of issues for us. So we do think it's important moving forward. Yeah, I think that'd be great, especially as the technology continues to increase the ability to communicate to a patient that something occurred with a device that they may have been implanted with, taking the middleman out, meaning the surgeon of having to communicate that and then allowing for a communication to occur with the surgeon to understand what does this mean for me going forward. Post-market-wise, there's also the MOD database, and I want to make sure we didn't really talk about it today in the town hall, but maybe you could talk a little bit, Captain Pete, about how the MOD database works, talking about complications or issues that occur during surgery or after surgery, after something's been out in the market, where one of our devices maybe doesn't perform as well as we expected. So the MOD database actually is our database that houses all medical device reporting. So these are adverse events that we're seeing with our particular devices. In typical form, it usually, from a hospital standpoint or a surgeon standpoint, they provide that information to the companies. Then the companies then make a decision whether or not they're going to incorporate this information in our MAW database. We're trying to do a paradigm shift within the organization, whereas the physicians are actually reporting the adverse events. 
particularly as it relates to the evolving technology when we're talking about digital health devices, robotics, and so forth, we're missing quite a number, and I do believe quite a number of adverse events that are not reported to the agency for us to have a proper surveillance aspects. This is where our surgeons can be most instrumental in not just providing adverse events for the devices that they're working on, these robotics, but also too, it helps us with making changes to the design. It also assists with how we regulate. It also assists with providing concrete information to our patients as well as our providers. Now, within the adverse event reporting, since it's very much voluntary, this particular aspect we are finding as we have more discussions, such as our augmented reality devices, we're finding out more that education is lacking from our surgeons. How often do you go to your particular provider and say, hey, I'm having a knee device, you're using this particular robotics, how much training have you had? Are there complications with the training? How informed are you? How many times have you had this particular surgery? We don't ask those questions as consumers, as patients. So it would be very helpful for us to capture this adverse events, such as whether it is patient-related, it is device-related, it is surgeon-related. And this is where we really need our surgeons to be part and parcel of providing that information, not just transferring the information to companies. And today, just for clarity's sake, surgeons today could report on the MOD database. They can go to the FDA's website and identify that they had a complication that they weren't expecting, that they feel is device-related. They can do that today. I know the focus is trying to get there, but we could encourage any of our listeners to get on today if they had a problem with the device. Yes. All you have to do is go to Google and type in reporting an adverse event to FDA, or just type in reporting adverse event related to a medical devices. Our MAW database comes up and anyone, patient, provider, company can voluntarily provide this information. And it is reviewed by FDA to be able to make informed decisions or contact for them to expound on what was submitted. And that kind of brings in this concept that we talked about a lot today, which was registries, which the Academy has done a great job of trying to put together registries, although, as we talked about, are not mandatory, which puts us behind maybe some of the other physician groups that have registries. Dr. Jeff Svar, can you talk a little bit about what we're doing with registries and the accomplishments we've had? And I think that can also incorporate how some of these devices work and function and whether some devices are maybe working better than others or having more complications than others. That's coming through in some of our registry data. The original registry, the AJR, which was for hip and knee replacements, was started just with the conceptually looking at very limited data set to look at implant survival and were there trends in survivalship of implants. What we realize now with registries is we need to be collecting a lot more data than just survivorship. Survivorship is important, but as was discussed today, there are a number of patients who have an implant that's still in that are unhappy with the implant. It doesn't mean that it will be revised or changed, but we have to do better and moving forward. So part of our initiative is collecting not only clinical data, but patient-reported outcomes data. We have a huge initiative to do. I think as you heard today, we have over a million patients in our AJR hip and knee registry. 
We do have access to Medicare data. So at least on our Medicare age patients, we can follow them longitudinally as well. And it's important to get all of that data in place. You heard Steve Glassman talk about the problem with the way that most of our registries are run right now is looking at ICD-9 codes and CPT codes. But in spine, for example, the ICD-10 codes, they don't really cover the gamut of diagnoses that people are really doing surgery for. So there's a number of improvements that our registries are making. The biggest issue is we have to improve uptake as we move procedures out of hospitals and into ambulatory surgery centers. We have to have initiatives to be able to collect data from those organizations, and we have to have surgeon champions who think it's important. You mentioned some things, maybe some better funding that we could get to help improve the utilization of these registries. Obviously, getting the word out is important. Getting facilities to participate is important. But are there other things that you feel like we can do, either as the academy or our listeners can do, maybe asking governmental agencies, not necessarily the FDA, but others to get us some funding for this? So for our patient-reported outcomes work group, one of their key initiatives is to work with you in advocacy to hopefully develop a code, an EM code or CPT code that we can be reimbursed for collecting patient-reported outcomes. As somebody that runs a large group, we do collect patient-reported outcomes. It's not cheap. It's not as expensive as some people have said it is, but it is not cheap to do so. So we have to figure out a way to do it in a way that we can do it efficiently, effectively, and make it also cost-effective as well. And so I think those are all the initiatives that are incredibly hard, but it starts with every physician, every surgeon saying that they're interested in collecting this data and making sure that patients understand why it's important to us. I couldn't agree more. I think getting more people involved, the more data we have, the better decisions we can make, the better outcomes we can have, the more we can share data with the FDA saying, here's what our registries are showing are working and what's not working so that they can move different devices through the approval process at different rates, which I think we talked a little bit about today. I was really intrigued to hear that Stryker is now essentially moving all of their new implants are coming through or devices are coming through the United States instead of from overseas, which is a dramatic change over the last 10 years. Captain Pete, can you talk a little bit about how you have shifted the vision and others have shifted the vision at the FDA to try and garner more implant companies to do their implants first in the United States and not overseas first? Yes, yeah, so we have various programs that are implemented within our center, whether it's the Breakthrough Devices Program, which is a program if you have an innovative product that can be beneficial, you have an opportunity to work very closely with FDA through the era of conception all the way to marketing application. I do believe because we have been so much more transparent, not just in guidance documents or standards or published literature, but we are also communicating effectively on the needs of the testing to be able to drive innovation and also to reduce the deficiencies that are done when we see an application. Quite frankly, when we look at a submission, we're looking at the totality of the information. But the totality of the information is only as good as what is submitted to us in a transparent, clear manner for us to be able to review and ask clear questions as to move through the marketing pathway process. So 
that's a little bit different from what I'm hearing from outside of the United States regulatory body. And so I'm happy to hear that more companies are coming to FDA for us to be able to review your submission and have your products be marketed here in the United States. I think the reason that mainly has occurred is because we've reduced the silos and are more transparent in our communication. That's wonderful. We see a lot more in our practices today, the use of software, robotics, virtual reality, augmented reality, decision-making aids. And I see that as a really unique and new part of what the FDA is now tasked with approving because many of these devices do require or are looking for some sort of FDA approval. Can you talk a little bit about how the FDA is managing this as we are all learning together how to utilize these and artificial intelligence is rapidly changing. We see things like chat GPT, which just became such a huge thing overnight. How is the FDA getting their hands around this? How is orthopedics? Are we one of the main groups that we're seeing? I know radiology seems to be another big area. How is the FDA handling these softwares and these decision aids? Very good question. One of the things that we have been working on is working very closely with our digital health of Center of Excellence. That particular center has really moved with a lot of guidance documents. I'm not quite sure if you're aware, but within the past three to four years, we have put out over 15 guidance documents, which is virtually unheard of here within the federal government. Notwithstanding that is the talent. We're recruiting talented individuals that have expertise in digital health, whether it's expertise in artificial intelligence, virtual reality devices. So also having that talent really help with that conversation, not just a conversation with companies, but also conversation with our surgeons as well as our patients to be able to address this. Quite naturally, with these particular devices, it's not just a matter of communicating with the industry. We also have to have a better understanding of how it actually is used within the surgeons. They're the ones that are doing the surgery, so having that better understanding. And also, too, the patients. How are the outcome, the patient outcomes based on that? Are the patients willing to take more risks by using this particular device? So those are the things that we have done as an organization to be able to spur it. Within OHT6, the Office of Orthopedic Devices, equally, as I've mentioned, the talent be more patient-centric, also surgeon-centric to be able to get that particular information. But we're doing more collaboration across the space to be able to be consistent, not just in the orthopedic space, but other spaces that use robotics and so forth. So do you see us using creating new clinical practice guidelines or appropriate use criteria for some of these new and unique techniques and tools that are available to us as a result of these new softwares? Absolutely, I do. The problem is, and Captain Pete referred to this, we need surgeons to report when things aren't going well. We need those adverse event reports because the literature clearly shows that surgeons do bail out on some of these cases and go back to non-robotic techniques, non-AR techniques, non-patient-specific instrumentation techniques, but those aren't reported. And just as every bit of software that you and I use in our life, we've never had any software that works 100% of the time perfectly, but we all want to know whether that's 0.01% of the time it doesn't work or whether it's 15% of the time. So for us, the difficulty we have right now is determining the true efficacy because we don't know how many times things were 
not used to the full level that they were supposed to be used and people made other decisions. And we really don't understand the safety profiles. So those are the types of things that we need our members, our orthopedic surgeons, to feel more comfortable about reporting those things. And I know they say to their rep that's in that case that day is say, oh, well, this didn't work. We're going to go back to our standard instrumentation. It's not clear to us, probably not clear to Captain Pete, that that information gets reported upstream. Yeah, I can think within the spine world of screws that are misplaced as a result of either robotics or some sort of image guidance software system that told you where to put an implant. And I suspect that none of those are probably reported on a regular basis. They are probably what you just said. A surgeon just says, that didn't work for me or it did something I don't feel like I would have done myself without that help. And we just move on as opposed to helping the science continue to push forward, improving the quality of our patient care so that the next surgeon who hasn't tried that device doesn't fall into the same trap. I think you hit it right on the head. There's a lack of education, and so we're trying our best to make sure that there's more reporting. We do believe there's underreporting. Point in fact, for our stereotaxic devices, we have a very low number of medical device adverse event reporting that is done. We know that there are concerns that are out there, but it's not being reported. It's either being reported to the company and the company are making their modifications or the company is making educational changes that are different from the labeling that we had put forward. So we really need to be able to encourage all of our patients as well as our surgeons to report these different anomalies that are occurring so that we can make those modifications that helps for future design changes. I think largely it also gets to the point of we want to make sure that we have ethical and informed consent with discussions with our patients. As you're well aware, our patients love innovation. They love robotics. They love technology. They love the instruments that you have that allow you to put pedicle screws in. And largely those things work really well and make us better surgeons. But we do have to understand those risk profiles as well. And that's where we're probably falling short right now. I really wanted to put forward that you eloquently put it. There's a lot of uncertainties that we are unaware of. And just by my presentation, you saw that we're trying to marry that benefit and risk profile, but not knowing the risk, especially when the product is on the market, equally becomes this whack-a-mole effort that we're doing as a regulatory body. And that's not where we want to go with our patients. So it's important for us to have that reporting as we move forward and be transparent in our education. If there's just one additional comment I can make, we heard a lot today about the use of world evidence. And as the person that's been in charge of our guidelines programs for a long time, our programs and our evidence has been really defined to this point about looking at the efficacy of whatever it is that we do. And we really need to be moving to the effectiveness of what we do. And that really comes into play with the real world evidence and people feeling more comfortable about reporting things that are happening. So I think all these things play together. And I think that's why these types of collaborations are incredibly important. May I just add one more thing about real world evidence? Oftentimes, whenever we're having difficulties with our products, we may look into the information here in the United States. There's no registry. So we do look outside of the United States to see if the very same devices that are approved here are equally on the market there and look at their registries to find out more information about their post-market surveillance. So 
we have to do a better job here within the United States of providing information in one centralized or just a small handful of centralized registries. And this is where I think AOS, as well as FDA and other members of the organization can really be able to foster that growth. Well, this is great. I think we've learned a lot about the FDA, probably an organization we all know exists, but many surgeons don't really know how to interact with nor understand how they can help the FDA do their job better and ultimately create better safety and better products for our orthopedic patients. So I appreciate both of your time. Thank you again, Dr. Jeff Savard. Thank you again, Captain Pete. And I look forward to working with both of you in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy. 